This week on Trek, Mary Kill, science, service, sacrifice. Next. Trek, Mary Kill. Hi, I'm Brian. Hi, I'm Cassie. Welcome to Trek, Mary Kill, a Star Trek podcast that knows better than to activate its warp drive while being held in a tractor beam. Joining us this week is Cassie Soliday, host of the podcast The Ink and Paint Folk, which celebrates women and non-binary folk working in animation and explores representation behind the scenes and on the screen. They've also written for animated shows like Puppy Dog Pals and Bugs Bunny Builders and the Wondery podcast Little Stories Everywhere. Cassie, welcome aboard. Thanks. I'm so excited to be here. <laughs> so you're a huge Trekkie, I've learned. And uh, do you remember your first time that you came to Star Trek? So I am a huge Trekkie now, but I came to it really <laughs> late in my 30s. Very like a few years ago is what I'm saying. Oh. And, and you know, it's one of those dumb things where like I was a kid, I didn't think comics were for me and I didn't think Star Trek was for me. However, I loved like other sci-fi things, but I don't know what it was about Star Trek. It just didn't feel like I could be part of it. You know, I, I don't know where I got that idea to be too very nerdy. Honest. You're too cool. And you just thought that's no, too nerdy. I was I was like a nerd in a different way. I was like uh. a little uh, horse nerd. <laughs> oh, OK. <laughs> and um, animation. <laughs> was cartoons all the time and boy bands, to be honest, basically. <laughs> replace turning red into like farming farming rural um southern illinois off the ohio river that is that is me (laughs) so i I think the science in science fiction is what derailed me because like my science (laughs) teachers were like science just isn't for you which i think is definitely a sexist thing to tell like a nine-year-old but i was like oh they know better than me so maybe i'll just stay away from anything with science in it (laughs) so obviously i don't recommend that for anyone um but you know there's a theme in today's episode where it's like, you got to question, you know, old processes and things that you think are right. And I definitely should have had this when I was a kid to like question why my thinking was that, you know? Yeah. Uh, Do you remember the first uh, Star Trek episode you saw, or maybe the first thing you saw that made you fall in love with it? Well, I watched the original series and, me and my husband are currently rewatching the whole series. Well, it's a first time watch for me. And um, I had watched the first six episodes years ago uh, while I was like working in a, on a production. And because like, my seatmate, because, you know, you have these bullpens in these animated productions. So you like sit around everyone. And a lot of the storyboard artists would watch things while they were like cleaning up their boards. Because, you know, it's you don't really need to be thinking because you already did all the planning out. And mm-hmm. I was like, what is that? They're like, it's Star Trek. <laughs> and I'm like, what? Looks great. <laughs> so I started watching it when I was doing like, you know, tasks for production that I could shut my brain off a little bit for. So that was my first one was the very first episode of the Star Trek original series. Hopefully with this show, people will feel uh, emboldened to just dip in anywhere and watch at random. I think that's one of the beauties of Star Trek is that you could just jump in um, kind of anywhere and kind of get what it's mostly about. Um, and then I'm just going to bring this up because we've talked about this offline. You're a big fan of the animated shows. I am. 
I don't know <laughs> about the one from like years ago, but the current animated Star Trek shows are amazing. And uh, to be honest, I think that's, you know, now that I think about it, those are the ones that I was like, Matt, we should go and watch all the old ones too. Because <laughs> like, there's like so many like nuggets in there, apparently, because he would go on and on about them. But I was like, I don't get this, but I like it, <laughs> you know? So it's like, you could watch it without knowing any of the things they're hinting at and still enjoy it. But like, I want to know what they're referring to. Because it's just going to be like, because, you know, with this expansive universe, the more that you get into it, the more that it gives you back. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I don't know how anyone watches Lower Decks without having seen Star Trek before it. Oh, it's so much fun, even if you don't know. I mean, come on, like a whole show from the perspective of like, uh, like the groundlings, you know, like the people at the very bottom ring, uh, the entry level roles of the whole Enterprise situation. It's like, I don't know, it's amazing. And I love underdog stories. (laughs) They are definitely all underdogs, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And Prodigy has a lot of that element, too, where they're kids and they're learning and all that. That one seems a little bit more straightforwardly you're learning along with them what Star Trek is. So there's a part of it that to me that it works pretty, pretty smoothly. I'm going to mm-hmm. just use this as an opportunity to make it clear that the the animated shows are Star Trek. There's no denying that we're just not covering them because there's so many live action episodes And when I think about it, I think about those two shows in particular. I'm like, some of our grades we can't necessarily use on the animated shows, or at least I haven't figured out a way to make it work that seems fair. I think a lot Mm. of what makes the live action shows work is sort of the messiness of the alchemy of everyone coming together to make something. And I understand that animation has that absolutely, but there is a uniformity to animation that live action doesn't have. And it's sort of that messiness the shagginess sometimes of these Star Trek live action shows that makes them fun in a different way. Whereas the animated shows are much more fun because they are more creatively freeing visually in a lot of ways. You can do a lot of interesting things with it. I don't know if that perspective's completely, um, I don't know, bigoted, (laughs) but at least for me, it's like, I don't know how you, like, how do you define the performance ones? Or you know what I mean? Like the performances are very protected because they have a lot more time to refine them anyway. That's my yeah, kind of I mean, I thing. get that. Yeah, because with animation, you get to refine it, even though it is also still on like a crunch schedule, but definitely not as crunched as live action TV, right? Yeah. But I mean, you could like alt the uh, grading by, you know, like character performance. Like you're, st- they're still acting, even though it's not the voice actor doing the acting. You know, because like the board artist takes the vo- vocal performance and then acts like draws out the acting and then the animator pluses it, you know, because it's not the same person who does both. But my purview on this <laughs> is that there is like, I don't know if you've heard this, but I get constantly frustrated with people thinking that live action is better than animation. Like neither is better. They're just, they're just their own thing. But like, ah, <laughs> just, Reese Witherspoon's oh, I, comment yeah. about like animated features are only for kids. It's like, no, they are good cinema for families, even though they have a lot of bits for kids. It's just wholesome storytelling. So I just get like really frustrated with the, um, you know, we're not going to look at the animated stuff, you know? <laughs> it just feels like it's like 
you know, just hammering that wine in there even more. You know, I know you're one person and like <laughs> you're just doing what's best for your thing, but I had to challenge it. It's fair. It's fair enough. I think that's a great point. Your passion for saying it's all the same. Why are you making a distinction? More for mm-hmm. me to think about. Much more yeah. for me to think about. Please think about it. Because I mean, even Prodigy, even though it's like for a younger audience, for sure, it's still like these kids who are not covered in the Federation and the Federation's all about like, there's no one left behind. No one was is goes without. And these kids are like going through this crazy, crazy journey just to like meet the Federation and get them out of their situation. Like... God, like it's so good. <laughs> Perfect uh, segue into this week's episode, I feel, actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to uh, get away from the bad stuff. Uh, so we're this week we're talking about Lift Us Where Suffering Cannot Reach. It premiered on Paramount Plus on June 9th, 2022. It's episode six of Strange New Worlds first season. It was written by Robin Wasserman and Bill Wolkoff and directed by Andy Armaganian. The Enterprise rescues a shuttle carrying a child whose ascension to the role of first servant on the planet Majalis is just days away. Guiding him through the ascension is an old crush of of Christopher Pike's and the rekindling of their romance or flirtations blinds Pike to her lies of omission. Uh, The ascension that the first servant is participating in will see his death in order to maintain the perfect prosperity of Majalis. As commanded by the planet's ancient forebears, who built basically like the perfect society machine, and this technology can only work with the sacrifice of a child's brain. You know, so a child. I was going to do something cute and just give the summary of uh, Ursula K. Le Guin's uh, walking away from Omalas because that's mm-hmm. what this story basically is. Okay. Um, and they don't even they don't even credit her in this, uh, but that one is a short story. That, uh, you know, a, a one child lives in squalor, so the rest of society can be, um, you know, pr- prosperous and happy. And uh, Ursula, K- Ursula K. Le Guin said of her own story that she enjoys that its legacy is being used by teachers to upset students and make them argue fiercely about morality. And this episode is, is 100% a morality play or morality dilemma. Is the life of one child, the pain, torture, and suffering, one child worth the perfectness or prosperity of one planet? And uh, this episode kind of argues yes, but we'll get into that. It's <laughs> um, all so, They should have questioned yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> there was very little questioning. There was a lot of, um, th- this is our beliefs. You have to respect it. <laughs> um, but It's our yeah. culture. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So have, was this the first time you had seen it or had you been watching Strange New Worlds from the beginning? Yeah, this is the first. Well, it's actually the second time I watched the pilot <laughs> earlier this week. And then I watched this because I really I really do not like watching things out of order because like especially if it's serialized, I want to see how it's building up. But I think watching the pilot and then this worked out really well. But after watching this episode, I don't think you do need to watch the pilot or anything. I'm just saying that that's the type of person I am. Uh, My brain won't shut off sometimes and it's just like, gotta do it. But I also wanted to mention real quick that Bill Walkoff, one of the writers of this episode, also writes for animation. Hmm. (laughs) That's great. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Just 
just throwing out more animation things. Okay. I think it's fantastic so, yeah. because uh, I think sometimes maybe historically there's been a lot more like siloing of writers. So I, I like when people jump back and forth. I'd like a lot yeah, more animation writers to jump into live action instead of the other way. <laughs> but, yeah. <laughs> that one go. seems harder yeah. <laughs> than live Congrats action though. coming over. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, for sure. There's all those, all those industry things. Which you can hear more about on my podcast. You can pay for <laughs> But Check anyway. It out. So this is like this section where we kind of talk about, like give a general reaction to the episode. I loved it. It's so good. It's so complicated. It has themes that I really like. Like, I mean, I mean, having a crush show up on your ship, pretty sexy. And then the <laughs> see, like them flirting was just adorable. And like, uh, when Pike sees Laura for the first time after they beam her, beam her and uh, the other two up, it was just like the cutest acting, like especially from Pike, I thought. But uh, adorable. <laughs> um, I, I got the story title wrong. It's the ones who walk away from Omalas. Omalas. Mm. Yeah, I'm saying. I just want to make sure I said it right. And I'm only saying that because the show basically said it's based on that. That's unavoidably so. Um. My reaction watching it was sort of like, uh, this is a pretty standard or typical moral dilemma that Star Trek would deal with, should deal with. Great that mm -hmm. it's in here. My story stuff aside, let's just for a moment focus on, I think this is the first episode where everyone realized what was going on with Anson Mount's hair as Pike. That this was, because this is past <laughs> the midpoint, and everyone was like, oh, it's just going to get taller and taller. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's so tall. Yeah, I really wish we had done um, like a chart, a scale, just to say where are we on the Anson rating, the Anson scale. Uh, what is it for the for the spiciness of the hot sauces, the, the Covell ratings? <laughs> yeah. we're, we're at the Mount Mount or whatever. You know, he's at a. So it's a. It was pretty tall this episode, and, and he he's the first uh, face we see on the episode. Uh, when he's yeah. Is it like a yet. peacock thing? Like <laughs> <laughs> trying to impress? <laughs> well, Kristen's off this week, but she had uh, postulated that it's just, uh, I'm not getting that many haircuts in the pandemic. So pile it up. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> <laughs> and so I just wanted to point that out. That that to me was the star of the episode uh, was his mm -hmm. hair. Uh, the moral dilemma, I think what really kind of... Mm, I, I liked the the premise of what they were what they were going for. I think how they went about it, they did a lot of work to really stay on the surface of the issue. We don't like to do summaries, but I just want to point out the Enterprise comes across the first servant is basically on a shuttle that's racing away from another shuttle that's trying to capture him, and we'll later find out that the the captures are working for his dad, the first servant's dad. Because he's trying mm -hmm. to get his son out of the process. Even though I was confused because they said that he's selected by lottery at birth and his parents have to give him up. But then it's his real dad, which I thought, OK, maybe it's not his real dad. But then it, it, they made it towards the end. I think they forgot that they had said that at the beginning. This is something I've noticed about Strange Two Worlds. <laughs> some they'll say in the first twenty minutes, they kind of forget sometimes in the last twenty minutes. It's bizarre. Anyway, it just seemed like what would have been cleaner was it's a kidnapping plot, like the other story that they had that some impoverished planet was trying to kidnap the first servant to hold as a ransom. Seemed like a pretty straightforward, clean thing, and then yeah. you could have cleared the brush and focused on like 
Pike is afraid of his future and this woman's offering an outlet. And you know what I mean? Like that seems like a pretty clear thing and it blinds him from the moral dilemma of it all. And then everyone gets to do what they're doing in, in the middle. Cadet Uhura has a big storyline, which only bothered me from the in, kind of, the show is really great at writing bratty people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, bratty people who are like good at like, I need to talk to your manager or don't talk to me that way. Kind of people. Cadet Uhura is in her, her security rotation. Um, so she's one of the cool things they did with Ohura in the show is cadets get to rotate through all the departments. So she's working with La'an a lot in this episode. I have a question for you about La'an and the security thing. I was going to say one thing about the um, the servant and his dad. There was a line where it was like, are you the father? And and the dad was like, only in a biological sense, which I thought was hilarious. <laughs> like right. When they first show up, it's like, okay. So yes, Anyways. yes, you're his father. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But just to that idea, there's just a lot of talking about the the plot instead to to distract from what they're they're trying to hold the reveal for as long as possible. Like we don't even get into why is this so important, this servant and all that stuff till like the last 10 or 15 minutes, really. And it's like all the stuff they've been doing beforehand was to kind of just throw us off the scent that this is as important. You know what I mean? Like what's really mm-hmm. dire about this? I don't know. Maybe it's just having watched a lot of TV or rewatching this episode, seeing the seams. It kind of is like, um, I just had this thought. Um, one of the criticisms of the Netflix movie that came out, I think it was with Anna Kendrick. I think it was last year called stowaway. And it's based on like a controversial 1954 short story called the cold equations. And it was controversial because it was basically a, a long-term ship or traveling through like a sleeper ship. Um, uh, a girl had stowed away for some reason. I can't remember, but because she had stowed away, it threw off all the equations and either she had to be kicked out into space or they all were going to die. And obviously wow. people were upset. It was like, it seems like this writer was just trying to figure out a way to kill a girl like that and worked backwards from that idea. And, and that's what this episode <laughs> felt a lot like. Uh, this is the second I'm giving tipping the ending. So I don't know. Fast forward 40 seconds if you don't want to be spoiled again. If you're <laughs> listening to this show and you didn't watch the episode, thank you. But like this is the second episode in one season where a kid dies. And actually, we have a body count of three dead kids in 10 episodes of Strange New Worlds. It's a little Jeez. bizarre. <laughs> it's a little bizarre. Too many. Yeah, too many. I think it's too many for sure. And um, and. And it just working backward. It just felt like they were very much working backwards from like, we got to kill this kid no matter what this kid's going to die. And, and so that was what kind of bugged me, but uh, this is a long tangent from what my bigger point was. Oh, the cadet O'Hara thing, the seven rules. (laughs) It's so far away. (laughs) But Lon has seven rules for security and I'm going to list them now. All right. We know, we know five of the seven. One, a Rogelian tiger pounces with no warning. Two, there are no breaks in security because threats never take breaks. Three, let your tricorder do the investigating. We don't know four and five. Number six, know when to bend the rules. And seven, leave no stone unturned. And she usually does this by requiring cadets to look under Mugatan breathing stones, which Cadet O'Hara is relieved to have not had to do. My question for you is this. Is that too many lessons for a security officer? Um, 
I mean, security keeping everyone safe. It makes sense that there'd be rules. But I also love that number six is that you can bend any of those rules. <laughs> so, like, what, why, why do you even have rules? <laughs> right. uh, and she's also had to do things like uh, security training, and then she's able to fire the phasers. I don't know. This is my this is my problem in um in the second episode when she's on the landing party rotation. And, and she beams aboard this comet that could potentially destroy a planet. Now Uhura's firing phasers during like a very tense life or death situation and being asked, by the way, in firing the phasers to fire them in the most precise way, even in experience, like firing to disable a ship instead of destroy it. <laughs> and then she fires the phasers and shears off a part of the ship and says, sorry, Captain, they changed direction at the last minute when they fired on us again. Which is like a to me a very young person like it wasn't my fault. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, yeah. it, it just a, it was like a bizarre. I like the cadet rotation concept. I I'm like I feel like they take it maybe a little too far sometimes. But I also mm-hmm. thought the rules were maybe a little esoteric. Yeah, I feel like it's just to make uh, Lon seem like more difficult to work with than she's already been established. <laughs> yes, I, I totally agree. I totally agree. I, I think. And to that sense, it's like, do you need the lessons or do you just need that she has a specific way of doing things? And and in that sense, do we need to have her tell these rules that that she has to ex- then explain to you? Right. She has to say what the rules and then define what it is. She When she says, let your tricorder do the investigating, she then goes on to say, if you press a button on a ship, it could activate a scuttling system and blow us all up. You know what I mean? Like every rule she has to explain why she's giving the rule. So they're not obvious. <laughs> yeah, I think storytelling device wise, like it's, it's nice that, you know, it gives the illusion that these are real characters that have processes and, and reasons for being the way they are. So like, it's one of those tangible things to just really show that like, she's very particular, like you said, but yeah, it does seem esoteric at the same time, <laughs> but also because like, we wanted to get back to like the interesting, <laughs> the interesting part of the episode. So yeah, but I see why it's there, of course. Mm-hmm. But then also just to talk a little bit more about the first serpent, they, they go out of the way to show the kid that uh, to show that the kid is being educated, being trained, uh, and is incredibly intelligent and and very curious and not a totally eh, precocious kid, I guess, but not obnoxiously so. Um, he, he was a he's cute so kid. Cute. Good, yeah, yeah, good casting. And it does a nice thing with the Dr. Mabenga storyline. I think I mentioned this. Dr. Mabenga's daughter does appear in this episode, though. Um, mm-hmm. And she has two scenes. And I think they're both they're both like uh, emotionally jarring scenes. The first one is. He's reading her the story uh, that we will see in the Elysium Kingdom, which I believe is the next episode. Um, and he's been reading her the same chapter over and over again. So not only is she only experiencing five minutes of life, <laughs> but it's the same five minutes. And uh, and then it, he has a, the transporter set for an auto timer. So she like beams the way in the middle of a sentence, which is pretty heartbreaking. <laughs> it really is. And, and- you know, the second uh, scene when she, re- you know, uh, is in, I loved that scene, you know, seeing Rikia, like, actually get to be a kid with the first yeah, servant. Because exactly. it doesn't seem like the first servant has had a chance to be a kid either. I mean, if you were selected by random, like, upon birth, you've probably not really lived a child 
a childhood, you know? So it was kind of cool to have those two kids actually playing and have that dynamic going. Absolutely. So we haven't talked, hopefully we'll talk about them in the grades, but uh, the first servant is being cared for by Elder Gamal, who is both his doctor, was a doctor like on the planet, but then after his son was selected, just became the first servant's doctor. And I guess is his dad. Let's just go with it. I mean, it it seems like the whole episode, it is his dad, like his actual biological father. I mean, why else would he try to save him, you know, at the end? Like, yeah. So I don't know why they said that he he was given up. It's, It's weird. Anyway. Should we get to the grades? No, I have one more thing to say before we get into the grades. The whole thing with the the nearby colony, like Prospect 7, it w- I am disappointed that they didn't really dive into that. Like, they just set up the moral, like, complication of it existing. But it felt like that thread was really let go, probably for time. Absolutely. Um, but I that's why I strongly feel like it should have just been her cover story of it being a straight kidnapping plot. Because that yeah. to me is much more Star Trek, where it's like you've got not neighboring planets, but one planet's aware of another one's prosperity and how they found out about the ceremony and they're using that to their advantage. To me, that that's just much cleaner. Like it's just a straightforward kidnapping plot. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you're because you're I right. Do, I do like having the extra reasons though, instead of just oh, we we need we need the money or the resources. That's why we're kidnapping. And they probably did, right, based on what the episode established. But, like, I kind of thought that Elder Gamal, you know, the father, seemingly, was <laughs> was working with them to save his son. That's what yes. I thought was happening, right? Yes, there is. Yeah, yes. And I don't know. There, there was a thing that Allura had said, you know, when um, after Pike saw what they were doing and, like, he, you know, back in the bedroom after the ascension was complete. Right. And, you know, she had said something, you can't tell me that there's that the Federation really takes care of everyone that like, you don't sacrifice something for something else. I forget the line I'm chopping. Should we, so should we save that for uh, great scenes or save that for later? Cause I, that was definitely, that's oh, definitely sure. the big scene of the episode. I feel <laughs> Oh, I don't even think I have that on my great scenes list. But oh, yeah, well, I, I mean, I guess it's an idea that we can talk about maybe later. Um, yes, I, I totally agree. Word. Sometimes I do think about when I'm watching something in the moment and if something's bothering me, like, okay, big shot, if you had one day to go through the script and you couldn't change locations or characters or whatever, what would you change <laughs> to make it like mm-hmm. make sense? And to your point about the kidnapping, and I understand the father working with him. I think that's where you just you just change. That's not his father. They're both true believers and it's a kidnapping plot. But one has simply you just take the emotional thing. This doctor who's been caring for this kid, the kid is charming. He he loves him. He cares about him. And even though he believes in the ascension, he for some reason, a part of him doesn't want to let this kid you know, follow through with his fate. And 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 because of all the incident with the Enterprise and interacting with the Enterprise crew, that's what compels him to spill the beans about what's going on or whatever. You know what I mean? Like that, that's a pretty straightforward, clean story too. It doesn't really, him being the father biologically or, or what doesn't really like it could go, it could work either way. Right. Anyway, 
I also yeah, th- but if he were the father, though, like that would be even more emotionally complicated to have to freely hand him over to what you know is like, especially like you might have believed in it for and never thought it was going to happen to you and your kid. And then it did. And you're like, OK, now I'm going to question it. But like, oh, I really at the very last minute, right. And you would think that they would figure they would know from history to just separate him out. Like he wouldn't even be a part of it for this exact reason. Right. This is supposed to be an incredibly intelligent, advanced race. And if you're giving up a child it seems like that's it you're cut off to give them to the state and that's it um yeah it's uh, like would we move to prospect seven if it meant we could be together with our loved ones but have less resources yeah maybe (laughs) right yeah that's an interesting point let's start with the grades so we'll go with great scenes do you have any great scenes from this episode (sighs) you kind of mentioned it earlier but dr mbanga and his daughter i i loved both those scenes when they were together and just really any scene with the doctor <laughs> I loved, but particularly the the first one with him and the daughter, I thought was just heart wrenching. And, um, it, and you know, like the one thing about like uh, cinema and TV is like how scenes like go together and build upon each other. So I have to also mention this scene when Dr. Mabenga realized the neurotech that, you know, elder Gamalan and their people were capable of that it could save his daughter and just like there were no words and you knew what was going through his head. And I thought that was so cool, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, his performance as the grieving father, you know, the overwhelmed father has, has definitely always come through. Um, yeah. That second scene, I want to revisit. Yeah. We talked about it a little bit where they're having fun. I want to revisit it for just a second. Cause I have it under great scenes, but for kind of a perverse reason. But before that, <laughs> before that, the the great scene I had sort of that was in between them was the scene where Spock meets the first servant. Uh, it's not a you know what? It's not a fantastic scene, but it for me the energy came through on each viewing that Spock is charmed by this kid just like everyone else. Um, he's impressed because. He basically does the bratty kids version of like your version of subspace is so boring. And I came up with the better subspace. But he basically (laughs) tells Spock that he has his own subspace frequency, which I think is adorable. Because as we learned in the next generation, subspace has an infinite number of domains. So this is both Star Trek accurate. And and it proves the point that this kid's super advanced, uh, very intelligent, that he can, uh, you know, work on his own subspace frequency. Um, and then the fact that Spock is basically saying, like, I've never encountered anyone your age who is aware of radio isotope uh, decay or whatever it was. Um, and so I liked it. And it was it was like a good setup that Spock then later is like, well, since he said he created the subspace signal, I thought it reasonable or logical to monitor it. And that's how we find out the distress call later on, which gets into a very, again, that's very convoluted. So then they kid. Uh, sorry, I don't want to think about this. Let's not talk about the implicitness. <laughs> Right, because they get beamed off the Enterprise again by a ship that sneaks up on the Enterprise, but then they don't get beamed off the Enterprise. They The kid gets beamed back onto the Enterprise in a secret storage container by well, his dad. I thought what happened was that... <laughs> so my what I thought was that, like, the Elder was... That was his plan to get beamed off to that ship right but then the kid had done something else that beamed him into the box because like there was a line that the kid had earlier in the episode where it this is just like a thing he does (laughs) 
<laughs> I can't remember what he said exactly, but it seemed like it was just like a normal thing that he, he does for fun is like as <laughs> a frequencies or whatever. But that's what I thought might have happened. But you, you are right. It's not it's not clear or direct at all. Anyway, no more unpleasantness. Any other great scenes that you have? <laughs> so the scene where the ascension is about to happen and the kid is like walk like uh, seeing the last first servant, um, you know, get taken down under that blanket and stuff. That was like, whoa. and also that environment, like the whole set was so beautiful. Obviously, very VFX, but it was yes. it was really gorgeous. But that whole scene was so good. Like, Alora is so aloof, just like, this is the way. And the first servant seeing his destiny right in front of him. And, like, although they've said nice things probably throughout, you know, since, like, he could talk, since he could understand words. Like, it's the biggest thing that you can do with your life if you are chosen to be the first servant, right? You were sacrificing yourself willingly and the whole thing about joy it's like oh my god (laughs) like he's saying this as he's seeing like the last one come down and it's just like (sighs) and then he sits down without without any opposition to to do his you know to fulfill his duty and his destiny and everyone's performance in that scene was so good i can't believe they showed the last kid's face (laughs) i was like right I literally like audibly gasped and like they showed the first kid's fried body too. (laughs) They really went for it. Yeah, they showed his face. That's what I'm saying. It's just like, oh my god. And like, because it's one thing to you know kill a kid in a show or movie and whatnot, but then that just show it. Like, oh, I hate it. But also, it was like really good, and it really, uh, I don't know. I feel conflicted. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I'm. I was fine with yeah. That it's the scene that follows where I really get like, well, I need to talk. I need to go talk to a therapist about this because it really bothered me. <laughs> Not what happens yeah. in the episode, but how they chose to deal. Anyway, um, all right, yeah, I would put that in there. You have to see that scene. It's the whole episode for sure. I think yeah. that's a good scene. Yeah, it's leading all up to it. But something you said earlier about like, you know, we spend so much time leading up to the scene and it happens in like the last 10, 15 minutes, right? And like, I do feel like that's a very Star Trek thing (laughs) where it's like the first, I mean, I didn't think that this episode was that slow, but like, especially in the original series, there's some episodes that are just so slow and then they're like so interesting (laughs) there at the end. And it's like, oh, but I couldn't have been gotten to this point without watching the rest of it, you know? Right. Just no, so I think that's, a, yeah, I think that's fair. I, I think it was just, you could feel them hiding the ball for uh, most of the episode just to get to this. And I feel like even in other Star Treks, other interesting things sort of happen along the way that maybe distracts you instead of making it seem like mm. they're not telling us everything. But anyway, that, yeah, every episode. I see. Is Probably yeah. uh, me not having seen as many Star Treks as, as you have. <laughs> I think that may have helped me because I, like I knew there was some philosophical question or moral, you know, problem coming because of yeah. the way the show is made, but I didn't know what it was. You so, know, like, I if thought the, the ascension was yeah. gonna be like fancy and like, oh, they're gonna be like a little king on the planet <laughs> or something, which was not it. I want to talk about the second Mabenga scene when he comes in and he sees his daughter playing hopscotch, which was really cool. The the effect that they use for her hopscotch grid. Um, mm-hmm. 
to your point about we don't get to see first servant be a little kid it would have been fun if they had both been doing it by the way this yeah it, <laughs> it would have been uh, it is a great scene because exactly what you said. I totally agree. We get to see her being a little kid. And then she's sad that she, you know, when he puts her back on the bio bed to be ba- beamed back into the transporter buffer, she said she was having fun. This is why I put it as a great scene. Cause it really, to me emphasizes that all of us should be saying that the Mabenga storyline was completely nuts. And this character is a psychopath because oh he then tells the little boy, don't tell anyone what you said. <laughs> And I'm like, he's asking the kid to lie. I think that's ridiculous. I think that's insane. I think this is nuts. Yeah. I mean, it would never fly on kids TV, but right. adult TV. Bad modeling. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, but on top of that, it's bad Star Trek, you know, lying. And uh, this episode, I think, really hinges on people lying. And so having our mm. Starfleet people also lying is just like really tricky. I know. I know. I know. Everyone I shouldn't say everyone, a huge contingent of people were like, I'll do anything for my child. I'll kill the entire world if I have to, to protect my child. And I, I think it just is like, fine, but that makes you psychotic. <laughs> like to other people, to the people you're killing, you're a psychopath. So that's all. I, I, I think the fact that they really went for it, like there is no limits to what Mbenga will do. Um, Whoa, I feel like I'm missing out on so much of this <laughs> Benga drama because I didn't think well, it was psycho. Like, I mean, well, I, but, but Benga put the ship in jeopardy when he had the transporter system. Remember that was or maybe you hadn't seen that this one yet. But like earlier, it was like, that. yeah, he's like because of what he did to the, you know, Jerry rigging the transporter. It put the Enterprise at risk at some point for some other thing because it couldn't it wasn't upgraded with the other systems. And it's like he's just lying and keeping the secret on top of that. So, like, he did threaten mm. the ships, you know, put the ship in jeopardy this entire time in some way, technically. And he's mm. willing to lie about it, which are just enough to be like he shouldn't even be in the service. That's kind of <sighs> <difficult. laughs> That's rough because, like, yeah. exactly what you said about, you know, being a parent doing anything for your child, like, that also makes sense. You know, and to be honest, I think the great thing about TV and getting to live with characters for more than just one scenario is that you get to see these characters push to their limits. Like Dr. Mabenga seems like an upright citizen, like what would need to happen to push him out of that, like and challenge everything that everyone knows about him. And that's certainly a storyline that does it, you know, um, I want to see what that looks like, you know? <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, best Trek tropes. Okay. Uh, the captain getting emotionally close to someone and then <laughs> flipping yes. what he thought he knew. Yes. Like, happens all the time. And I love it. <laughs> yes, it's great. Yeah, uh, I put like, that as oh, Captain God. hooking up with the guest star, but yours is better. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they're both saying the same thing, right? <laughs> yep, yep, that's great. Uh, yeah, I thought, geez, like Laura being cool to sacrifice a child just for reasons she doesn't even n- understand. <laughs> like, it's just the way it's always been. Even when they were talking about like, you know, we tried to find alternatives. It's like, did you try the alternative of just not giving it a sacrifice? Right. Like, I wish we would have known what happens if they just don't do it, you know? Right. Ugh. Well, they they said our, our floating planets. That's the other thing I didn't mention. There's kind of like a cloud minders thing going on where like, or Dana, where like the 
plant the people live above the surface the surface is lava and and poison but they live in the clouds mm-hmm. on these floating cities and if the right. perfection machine doesn't have a child's brain all the cities will crash <laughs> and they don't ah. know how they know how to heal bodies on the subatomic level um but they don't know how to keep the planet or the the oh. cities from sinking um, that's so frustrating yeah. Yeah, that gets, I don't want to keep I don't want to go into all those my nitpicks about that whole line of reasoning just yet. But yes, that's in my whole thing about what you said about you could do this, but you can't do that. Anyway, uh, any other mm-hmm. Trek tropes that you want to point out? That's a great uh, one. This, that's maybe the yeah, best one. <laughs> and I feel like this is probably re- kind of the same thing, just in a different way. So Laura talking about not trusting those she thought she knew well, like when the guard, they found a guard that was a traitor and like that's so relatable to real life too because you they, everyone has shades of themselves you know mm-hmm. but it, it's just kind of like a parallel to the last one i mentioned yeah i've got you know red alert and you know Kristen likes when there's red alert and i like when there's red alert. It's good. <laughs> yeah. tractor beam using the tractor beam is cool oh, and they yeah. used to good effect this time where the ship tries to uh, go to warp while being held by a tractor beam that's always big no so- no yeah. that was so cool to see <laughs> yeah so having a little twist on using it was great um and then subspace, and I mentioned this before, subspace has infinite number of domains, and the kid being like, adult subspace is slow, and kid subspace is cool. Like, I, I just thought it was fun to <laughs> mention subspace yeah. communication and all that stuff. That that was fun. Worst Trek tropes. Uh, Alora asking the guards to recommit to their vows to uh, protect the first servant. So the chase scene felt a bit Keystone Cops to me. And I feel yeah. like Star Trek has these moments where like these fight scenes or these chase scenes just go on like just a little too long. But they're also kind of goofy and showcase the set, which is fun to watch, you know. But I would say that one for me. But it was cool to see uh, when the guards get blown to smithereens. It's like, no, I could kill you. But now we're going to do this goofy chase scene. Yeah, I, I'm going to shoot one so that we have the effect of what the actual Jeopardy is, <laughs> but yeah, I won't exactly. use that weapon again. Um, to to your point about running around and showing off that location, Parkwood Estate in Oshawa, Ontario was the silvering, uh, was the location that they used for the, oh. like the castle. I, I'm just pointing out to memory alpha, so nice. I've never been there. I don't know anything about it. Uh, but our Ontarians, tickets. yeah, exactly. It is very nice. <laughs> that was gorgeous. <laughs> it, it did exactly what it was supposed to do uh, in selling the effect. So I had um, the planet throws up a disrupting field that prevents them from communicating or beaming oh, down yeah. to the surface. <laughs> Just right <laughs> when number one figures out what's really going on with the ascension ceremony. So that's a pretty classic trope. And it's always used to this annoying effect to... Uh, yeah prevent the story from going in a logical place um you know that reminds me (laughs) so the pike is as honor is is asked to be at the ceremony but like at first he's there when the kid's just waving to the crowd and then Mm -hmm. because she's like so take like she's in euphoria right like a religious rapture experience basically yeah and she's like and because i love you i want you to be a part of this thing i love even though she was very clear about this is sacred sacrosanct it's it's off limits to outsiders um i don't think you need the extra beat of her asking him to show how close they are because then you have the kid come and say, Pike, I would like you to come with me. <laughs> it's like, why do oh, they have both right. of those things? The kid asking should be enough to let Alora know that it's okay. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's almost like the first servant asking Pike 
is telling her that her religious fervor is being rewarded, right? If you're following the religious line, uh, the the zeal, that's like, wow, it's like God is saying my choices are correct. He even wants the person I love to be a part of this. Like, it just seems very strange that they twinned it that way. But anyway. Yeah, that's interesting. Because uh, like, I was, I was totally fine with Laura asking. I actually <laughs> forgot that the kid also said it. But like, because I think Laura had said that like uh, the like the elders or the council or something had blessed him to come, like he could come. But I did like like for the storyline of Alora and Pike, it was nice to see that like Pike was kind of in there every day, like he was kind of acclimating to their culture and becoming part of it, you know. And so kind of furthering his storyline that oh maybe this is a future that he could live in and maybe this would be his solution to you know that you know that future fate that he is heading towards really fast all right let's talk about yeah yeah. i agree let's talk about that then right now (laughs) because (laughs) after they sleep together he spills the beans about his fate in 10 years from now he's going to be they are treated the show treats it like he's gonna die he's confined to a wheelchair is basically yeah. what it is. but he can't that's speak. That's season one yeah. of a f- yeah, yeah. Uh, season two of Discovery. Yeah, and it's from oh, it's from also season the, one original of the original series. series. Well, in season two of Discovery, he goes to this Klingon monastery that that harvests or protects time crystals, and so mm. they said, "Listen, you can get the solve for the big season issue, um, but you'll and you'll know your fate, and you can't do anything about it. So you either mm. have to choose your fate or just be left with not knowing." how to fix your problem. And Pike for the good of the Federation picks his fate, chooses his fate. And then this entire season of strange new worlds has been about him sort of whinging about it mm. <laughs> to, to bring in the British parlance. But I did like that. He could, I mean, again, they're trying to shortcut. Here's how close Pike and Alora are. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he's like, he's going to tell her this very intimate thing. And she's like, well, we have the technology. Maybe we can fix you. You just have to be one of us. Um, that gets to my bigger point, though, because this kid's selected by lottery, but he has a fate. Two contradictory issues. Is it lottery or fate? Whatever it is. Lottery is random chance. Okay? He was mm-hmm. fated. Whatever. But anyway, she says that he, it's his fate. It's his destiny uh, for a servant to die this way for his people. I feel like that should resonate with Pike quite a lot. Mm-hmm. You're saying yeah. this child's fate is to die at 10 years old. I am dead in 10 years. You know what I mean? Like that seems like yeah. a, a thing that they oh, never, it's a, wow, it's a, yes. it's, it's a thing they didn't tie together. And and that's why this episode bothers me so much, which we have to get to the other scene where she's talking about the Federation. Alora has been lying to his face the whole time. And so to me, what really hits is not the um, moral uh, dilemma. It's the, it's the emotional betrayal between Pike and Alora, And, and that the episode just doesn't get into that. It just doesn't deal with that in any meaningful way. And I thought that was a huge bummer. I'm like, okay, why are we seeing Pike's fate in the previouslys? just to remind the audience. So when he tells her, that seems like it's not enough. I just feel like they, they dropped the ball there on something that was really interesting. You know, there's only so much space for a TV episode to take place. And I feel like, they're asking like the audience to step up and do some of the work too. And I feel like Star Trek is one of those shows where like it sticks with you 
you know, <laughs> and you think about these things and then you connect them yourself, you know, but they yeah. pack them so full though is the thing. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's why I was, I'm kind of like cheering if they had just kind of cleared the brush with the, you know, the setup, they could have gotten to the more interesting elements of the story they set up faster and spent more time, had more real estate to do that kind of thing. That that's, that was kind of my larger point of like, they get a kidnapping mm. plot. Anyway. Um, yeah. let's I see. bet these shows are so tough to write for. It seems like they're very top heavy in terms of executive producers. And I'm sure I totally like, agree. They have three set. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Um, most of it's time quality. Oh yes. Uh, the way the show is shot with all the solar flares feels very Abrams yeah. like from the movie. And uh, of course the technology and like the, um, Oh shit. I forgot what it's called. The upper deck. <laughs> Where the, <laughs> the bridge. <laughs> The bridge. <laughs> the most simplest thing I should remember. Yes. Yeah. So the bridge is so sleek. It's like, it's a gorgeous show. Like, yeah. it looks great. So this this is probably where we should get into the uh, scene after the kid gets killed or, you know, zapped. Um, and Pike tries to fight to save him and he gets knocked out and he wakes up back in the bed where they had had sex and were intimate. But in this case, he's not kind of a prisoner, basically. And um, and Alora basically says, uh, you know, can you honestly say that no, that there are no kids in the Federation who suffer for everyone else's prosperity? And at the time, because I watched this when they drop right on Paramount Plus, so I'm up late watching them, which is both a good and bad way of watching them. <laughs> um, but I definitely jumped off the couch and said, yes. That's the point of Star Trek. And I I have since understood, like, obviously, that's not the case entirely. It is Earth, the case with Earth, though, that they have figured it out. And and it seems what bothered me about that scene, what makes it most of its time is sort of what we joked about earlier, where it's like, these are my beliefs. You know what I mean? So, like, you can't challenge them. But this is where I'm like, he, she's been lying to him the whole episode. So the most of its time quality I'm saying is sort of like the postmodern deconstruction of Star Trek and letting that deconstruction lie. Like, let that be the truth. Like, I've deconstructed Star Trek and that's it. You can't question what I've done because I've just deconstructed it. And that that was the point of this whole exercise. Mm. But to me, it gets away from drama and character because Pike, as a moral man, would say we were like you once. He would do a Kirk-like speech or a Picard-like speech. This is superstition. You know, you you know, this is we thought we had only one way we could live too. I thought of the gun debate debate. You know, to me there's there's a version of this where you could say like that kid being sacrificed is like the second amendment second amendment nuts. Like kids getting killed in classrooms who cares? I, I have my rights. This is what this is the world I want. You know, you can draw a lot of parallels and the fact that it just gets dropped to say like well the federation isn't perfect either. I just thought it was a bummer, but also most of it's time. <laughs> also, I want to know what that conversation was like when he woke up in the, in the, in her bedroom. Like, what did she say to the guards? Take him to my bedroom. <laughs> like, <laughs> Take him to the other side. Yeah. <laughs> Take us to the other location we secured for this yeah. shooting day. Yeah. Um, yeah. I totally agree. Um, now we go on to the line must be drawn here. Great lines. <laughs> Yeah. So <laughs> when Chris 
teases Laura about not being able to fly ships well, like after they slept together and they're just like flirting pillow talk, I guess. Uh, and she's like, I knew how to fly it. I just flew it into the, <laughs> I just didn't fly it into the right place or something. Uh-huh. I thought that was really funny. Um, there's obviously other great lines, but that's the one I remember. <laughs> I, the one I put down that I thought was great was how we got the episode title. So the titular line, Elder Gamal to Mabenga. I'm a jealous. We have a saying, let the tree that grows from the roots of sacrifice lift us where suffering cannot reach. Um, I think sometimes people try to write profound dialogue to make sure that everyone's aware that this is a profound moment. And I think in this case, it really works because sometimes people so full of themselves or like this sort of religious fervor uh, will sometimes cause you to say things that sound profound, but really aren't. And this seems like it's perfect for what's it like crosses it's intersectional and, and and how effective it is. I thought so. I like that. So true. The Anton Caridian award for best performance. I think it should go to the first servant. Specifically. In the scene where he sees the previous first servant, I just thought that was <laughs> so good. I I don't think that ceremony has. They've had a thousand years to get that ceremony right, and I don't think that that's a good process. Yeah, <laughs> we're gonna wheel the 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 kid back and tell the kid you're choosing this freely, right? Like he has yeah. a choice. <laughs> like that's why they had him say, yes, I choose this with joy before they took the yeah, other kid away. Right. Oh, you said joy and gratitude. You said. You said it. <laughs> that's a great one. I was trying to look up the kid's name real quick and I, I don't have time. Uh, no, I got it. Ian Ho. Congrats, Ian Ho. That was good. And um, <laughs> But I, I also honorary mention Anson Mount's hair. Yes. <laughs> Even in the scene in the bed when he gets up and it's a little disheveled just on the side, the, the, mm-hmm. the centerpiece works per- great. Uh, that yeah, give us the shell. Oh, yeah. Great gel. Great space gel. Uh, let's, <laughs> so let's move on to the Shatner. I thought Elder Gamal, particularly oh. in the end when he lets everything out. It was, I, I it was pretty dramatic. <laughs> I think so too. I, I also thought maybe the direction in that scene didn't help him quite as well. Maybe it's just the tough set lo- looked a little narrow. Um, yeah. it, it just didn't seem like what he was saying was matching up with how he was moving. I'm not sure. It, yeah, I agree. It didn't, he was not totally, um, it wasn't a good match with everything. Um, yeah, I he, it was definitely cause like throughout the entire thing, he had to split his performance in a way to where like, I right. am caring for this child, mm-hmm. but I also want to save him. And like, you know, so I'm sure that was hard to maneuver, you know, but, yep. and I think you said this in like one of your earlier podcast episodes where it's like that bridge is not like ideal for some shots <laughs> either. It's yep. like hard to get certain people in the same shot and stuff like that. There's just a lot more space and people around. I want to put it as an honorary mention, speaking of hair and head, Alora's headdress. There are three dangling beads on it and two of them, the whole episode are doing a lot of work of dangling because of the way her head moves. So like her center one and the left one over her left eye are dangling a lot. So I want to give them a Shatner for uh, really going for it. Head acting is tough. Yeah. And having something on your head. So uh, anyone listening, this is maybe it sounds a little mean, but sort of like one of the differences between TV and film actors is that TV actors are much more prone to head acting where they're moving their head around with every line and film actors know that you have to keep it pretty still. 
And um, and so sometimes the fact that they then put a, a dangly thing on her head, which which moves when you move, really mm-hmm. to me signaled what was going on. So, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know what it is about like dangly things, but it does. I feel like for most characters or just people in general in real life, it it just it makes the person feel dainty or like uh, fragile or yes, feminine. I guess yes, you know. I feel like there is a, ver- I think that was kind of what they were going for with Alora, where she is a little, not a doll, but you know, there is something very um, pristine or distant about her, or she's just very mm. pretty, right? I mean, she kind of like slaps yeah. him playfully. Oh, Chris, I, I was meaning to, I just went in the wrong direction. <laughs> you know, how did, you know, that kind yeah, of thing. true. And I do think that maybe that was also playing on Pike, as a protector, you know, and absolutely yes. Right? Well, look at those big, those big arms and the, the big broad chest. I mean, sure, why not? <laughs> yeah, for sure. But also, like you know, now this makes me think it's like, oh, she cannot do no wrong. What a kind, compassionate, you know, lady here. Yeah. And then she <laughs> sacrifices a kid on free will. Like, yep. What? <laughs> I think you're totally right. I think they were trying to set up that contrast for sure. Um, and credit to the actor because she, I think she, when she had to do the turn, that was still the same character. It wasn't like a mustache twirl reveal kind of thing Mm -hmm. where it could have been. Cause like, I don't, cause you said that she lies by omission, but like, I don't think that she was trying to lie. It was just their way of life. Why did she have to call it out? Cause that's just the way things are, you know? So I don't Uh, think she was, I don't know. Rewatching the episode, you can see that the, the performance is that she's acting like her character is lying. She's doing a lot of mm. double blinking, especially like when Spock finds the coin on the crash ship. Um, she's like, Oh, that's weird. How'd that get here? <laughs> like, and they, 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 they knew what was going on. They knew who the prospect seven people were. They knew all, she knew all that. So she's, she's just dancing around it, which I call a lie of omission, but maybe that won't hold up in court. I don't know. Uh, yeah. Which part which part of this incident are they teaching at Starfleet Academy? Uh, the ordeal with Prospect 7, uh, for sure. Like, c- kind of like what we said earlier, like being part of the Federation is you know, no one gets left behind or w- without, left without. So Alora's planet clearly has something going on with them. <laughs> and is there, is this like where they hide their people who don't fall into line, send there to have less on purpose, you know, like... I feel like those kind of things, because like they're not a part of the Federation. So what's Federation's um, reason for like putting themselves in that? Right. So like I think Pike also like talked about this a little bit where, you know, Alora says we're not a part of the Federation. You have no power here, basically. Right. Like you can't interfere with our way of life. And I feel like that's probably something that comes up in Starfleet Academy, right? Because clearly they need help, you know, and there's probably a better way to do it. But if they don't want your help, it's unethical to help, right? Yeah, I think uh, the Magellan Ascension ceremony is 100% being taught in like a galactic ethics class in the same way that those who walk away from Omelas, uh, that's taught in schools. I think the the entire situation of like, is it right that this one planet um, sacrifices a child for no suffering, no disease? That's what um, um, 
uh, elder says that there's no diseases on the planet. You know, and it also reminded me of um, an episode from The Next Generation, the first season, and I'm completely blanking on the name now, but it's um, the Enterprise has kids on board and all the kids get kidnapped uh, because this planet, these people, (laughs) this alien thing that like creates prosperity for them has also, I guess, created radiation that's made the people infertile so they can't have any more kids, but they're trying to Mm -hmm. maintain their, so they kidnap the Enterprise kids. Um, but then that one, they just fix the machine like that's that's the soul okay. there. But it's just weird that there's kind of there's like a, a very vague similarity to a Star Trek, uh, another Star yeah. Trek episode going on there. Um, I look forward all right. to that episode. I want to see a bunch of kids on the Enterprise. <laughs> I think I think for the purposes of the episodes, like five and Wesley Crusher is one of them. But anyway, yeah. um, how would. So this will be an interesting question to ask you then. How would the predecessor show or captain resolve the conflict? Well, who was the predecessor to Captain Pike? I don't think that's, I know. That's why I think it's great. So the uh, it's great to ask you this. So the predecessor show is Star Trek Discovery in the timeline. But mm-hmm. as uh, our good friend Hector Navarro pointed out, technically it's actually Prodigy or if you want Lower Decks. Mm-hmm. Those are the shows that immediately precede Discovery. And in the timeline, it would probably be Michael Burnham. If you're just doing the Star Trek timeline, it's still Michael Burnham uh, mm. in there. Because I think Lower yeah. Decks and um, and Prodigy take place in like the 24th or 25th century. So, Oh, interesting. Wow. Yeah, I'm not familiar with, with all the timelines. I thought who that do, Kirk you think would have learned yeah. a lot from Pike, you know? But let's see. So... <laughs> Let me read this question again. How would the predecessor <laughs> resolve the conflict? Well, with lower decks, it would have got worse before it got better, for sure. <laughs> Which is like the best part of that show. <laughs> uh-huh. Yep. Um, but I mean, the kids on uh, Prodigy would have just—I I feel like they would have been freaked out from this whole adventure because you know the servant is a kid like them. You know, they're not much older than than this kid um you can just say pass if you don't have yeah. an answer. all right I, I don't i have a whole discovery I pitch question, i have a yes, whole discovery pitch worked out <laughs> i think michael burnham would have formed a bond with the kid and alora would have been hot for saru and saru would try to oppose burnham at first believing that a people's beliefs supersedes an individual's morals because you know his people and i'm blanking on their name blanking on their name right now um that you know they have a very specific set of rules and how they live their life and he would certainly think that they should respect it but in the end he would recognize the child's fear because his race is like all about fear his people you know and so it's like he would have recognized the fear in that kid's face he would have changed sides and helped burnham rescue the kid and then uh tilly would have transformed like a replicator into a fake brain that tricked the perfection machine and everything would have been fine. They would have they would have radically changed the way of life on the planet, and that that was that's my prediction. My my discovery pitches are always like they always just impress upon what they want to get what they mm-hmm. want, um, which is also very Star Trek. So in hearing your answer, I know sometimes I need an example <laughs> before sure. I know how to like answer. 
But uh, so I love your answer and I cannot wait to one day re-listen to this and fully understand this <laughs> after watching Discovery. <laughs> but uh, so Mariner and Boimler are two of the main characters of Lower Decks. And I think that like if the captain had been like, here, <laughs> Ensigns, like go take care of this kid make sure they're comfortable and happy and all that. And Mariner would be like, like we'll figure out what is happening and Boimler would be like, but we have to follow the rules. And I think that there would be a lot of fun in Mariner trying to get the kid out of the situation while Boimler is just trying to do his duty, but struggling with that philosophical uh, problem. Right. So yeah, I, I totally agree. Cool. I, I could see that for sure. Um, all right. So then that the big question, Trek, Mary or kill lift us where suffering cannot reach. Mary. I really enjoyed Mary. this episode. All right, you're going to marry this you? one. Um, I don't like to disagree with my guests, so we'll go with a marry on oh, this one. No, please. <laughs> disagree with me. Because like, a good argument can change minds. A trek. I was going to say it's a very solid trek. I, I have issues that are not the same as viewers' issues, um, but I still think this is an episode that I'm glad they did. And I really... But for me, who's like totally in the bag for the Pike the concept behind the storyline that this is a season one emotional arc, essentially. I really thought that someone he cared about essentially betraying him was a really great angle to play on it. And uh, I just, so I, it's like, to me, I'm like, what could have been instead of what mm. is, is affecting my, my ruling a little bit more, but yeah, I don't know. There's just like a lot of stuff that distracted from, I thought was the meat of the episode. They definitely try to service a lot of um, yep. relationship dynamics. It would be great to hear, like, watch an episode where that wasn't the case. Because there is something to be said for a more episodic, like, TV. Is that you get to just make that one storyline shine within the bigger universe, right? Absolutely. I'm a big proponent of episodic TV. But that's a conversation for another day. In the meantime, people should go check out your various conversations on the Ink and Paint Folk podcast, right? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. If you want to hear about women and non-binary folk who work in animation and what it takes to make animation and like the process and the industry talk, uh, definitely check it out. And if you just want to follow me, I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Cassie Soliday. Cassie, it's been great having you on. Thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. And since we split our vote, that means you listeners get the chance to sway the outcome. Check out our poll question in the Spotify app if you're using it to listen to us. And you can also vote on our website, trekmarykillpod.com. Strange New Worlds Episode 6, Lift Us Where Suffering Cannot Reach. What do you think? Trek it or marry it? So until next week when we'll be back with an all-new episode, TMK out.